does brain create consciousness? Yeah. Um, it's actually a centrally important question. Does brain create consciousness? Now, I'm not a philosopher. I'm like so not a philosopher. So if you are a philosopher, leave the room now. <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a Buddhist. I committed my life to understanding the mind and, more importantly, changing it. And that's my interest in the nature of mind. I'm not interested in the nature of mind primarily for theoretical reasons. Um, actually, it is very, very interesting. It's just that it goes in one ear and goes out the next. You know, I read it and think, that's so fantastic. Someone says to me, what did he say? I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> do you have that? Is it just me? Anyway, you know, think, that's so good, that's so good. And someone says, what's so good? I said, it's like really good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't give you much explanatory power, basically. Um, so yes, um, so does, does, does the brain create consciousness? Now, already you've got these problems even in that, con that construction. So even when we say the nature of mind, or we say consciousness, both of those words are problematic. So if you say the nature of mind, it sounds like the mind is a thing that you've got, like the nature of your knee. <laughs> you know, so let's look at the knee joint and study it and work out what its nature is. Do you see, actually that's very problematic uh, to think the nature of, you, of mind as like it's a thing that you can find out what kind of thing it is. That's what that suggests, doesn't it? The nature of mind. Um, one of the things that's quite possible about the mind, which is pretty hard to argue against, is that the mind is not a thing. If the mind is not, this is what Schopenhauer thought at least, if the mind is not a thing, then uh, things like number, uh, it, it can be neither one nor many, because that only applies to things. It can have no contour, because that only applies to things. You can't call it an it. Unfortunately, human language is, 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 has evolved to talk about things. So how do you talk about things, <laughs> things that aren't things? Yeah? So even the idea, just to mystify it a bit more, the, even the idea that the nature of mind is actually problematic, and, and Buddhism, I don't think, talks like that very much, because it reifies mind. As if, oh yeah, you've got this body and you've got psychology and you've got your life, but underneath it you've got this mind, yeah, and we can find out what its nature is. It's a bit starts to sound a bit like a soul if you think of it like that. Buddhism doesn't believe in a soul, or at least doesn't believe in a soul in the sense it's come to be understood in Western tradition, which is, you know, the real part of you that somehow goes on forever in heaven or hell or or enters in life in another uh, reincarnation will be looking at reincarnation either next week or the week after, I can't remember, anyway, one of the weeks, because um, we explored that on the nature of mind and are exploring it. So, you know, if you say, what is the nature of mind, already you're in a, actually a problem, because you're, without realising, turning the mind into a thing that you could find out what it is, and then you, you end up chasing your own tail. You know? And but Buddhism doesn't think of the mind as a thing, um, I won't get it. The, tr the trouble with these little presentations, little es I think the, the most espresso versions of the nature of mind, is it's very tempting to go off into more explanation and that's, that, that'll take too much time. Anyway, take my word for it, watch the videos, come on the retreat, um, just put that at the end of everything to make an excuse. Um, 
So then the other question you could say is, okay, what is the nature of consciousness? That's often how it's put. Uh, is consciousness created by the mind? Uh, a while ago, um, we interviewed the scientist Rupert Sheldrake, um, who is very, very interesting. Uh, he's, you know, he's always a- accused of being a pseudoscience. He's not pseudoscience at all. He's just, he's, got, he's like, I'm, I suppose I'm on camera, I shouldn't say, he's like a sort of mad scientist. He's like every time, everything that appears to him, he just thinks, well, you should be able to study that. So for instance, you know, one of his studies is on do dogs know whether their owners are coming back? You know, the, everyone's grown up this idea, oh, the dog always knows whether you, when you're coming home. So Rupert Sheldrake just, you know, he's just thinking, well, you should be able to study that, shouldn't you? You know, you change, change the time of the vehicle, change the vehicle, change the perfume that the owner's wearing if they're wearing it, change their time, change, change their shoes. Do they know more regularly than they should do that the owner is coming back? It turns out when you do the studies, they do. Yeah? Um, they know much more than they should. They, they, but statistically, they do seem to know when you're coming home. Yeah? It seems to be... There seems to be some truth in it. So he's then saying, well, what does that say about mind? Yeah? What does it say about mind? It was interesting when he showed another, he talked to another scientist about it, and they said, oh, that's just rubbish. And he said, well, let's look at the evidence. And he said, I don't want to see the evidence. <laughs> and as soon as the scientist says, I don't want to see the evidence, they are no longer a scientist. Yeah? Uh, they're sort of a, I don't know, a prejudiced of some sort. Yeah? Um, that can be made of them. Anyway, he, he was saying you can't really talk about consciousness because consciousness suggests something that's conscious. And he was saying one of the things we definitely know about the mind, to use that metaphor. So you see, even when you start talking about mind, you're actually deep in the world of metaphor without realising it. And then you take those meta- metaphors li- literally. Um, but if you talk about consciousness, you're effectively saying that you easily think of it as something that's conscious, that consciousness is a, a kind of awareness but we know that most of the mind is not conscious. In fact, it's very mysterious. Like, you know how you can be doing something, and you, you, we seem to have some... I, I was cycling through traffic this morning, and just, re, you know, you can be thinking about stuff, you know, vaguely attending to the, your journey, and suddenly you'll see something that alerts you, and you're suddenly alert. It's like that you've, you've got a faculty that's open to things at the, at the periphery of your vision, for instance. You know, a lot of your mind basically isn't, isn't conscious. Um, the way you have breakfast isn't a conscious activity. You don't think, spoon, where is the spoon? Spoon, you know, where is the bowl? Um, you just do it, don't you, Paul, you know, without actually thinking about it. Whilst you're talking to somebody, whilst you're listening to a podcast, you know, most of your mind isn't conscious, basically. So it's not really quite right to talk about consciousness either. Yeah. Um, so having destroyed both terms, you can't talk about mind, you can't talk about consciousness. But something's going on, isn't it? <laughs> you know, something's going on. I mean, so, so whatever it is by the nature of mind, it's definitely a mystery. It actually is the greatest mystery. In philosophy, it's a big problem. Yeah. How does matter become conscious? Yeah. How does matter create, if that's the right metaphor, consciousness. Yeah? Um, it's, it's the big problem. Like you can do, I don't know, whatever they are, x-rays, whatever, they're more, they're more sophisticated than x-rays, but you can, you can see how neurons fire 
and you can you know put people in cat scans whilst they're meditating or whatever and see what parts of the brain are act are being activated and so on you can see that in quite a lot of detail but nobody understands this here this moment that we're in nobody knows how that becomes this yeah how you can look out of a window and have that experience yeah um it's unfathomable after all this time no one knows how we do that it's the big problem in philosophy how does matter create consciousness yeah um we really don't know i don't know and you don't know rupert sheldrake doesn't know um um we we also interviewed bernardo castro who used to work for cern he doesn't know he's got a very strong theory and a very appealing theory but he doesn't know none of us actually know how we do this so if you want to look for miracles in your life all you need to do is you wake up in the morning and live in this world which you'd have to i don't know definitely happens <laughs> you know something's going on you know that in interesting you know that's what buddhism wants to keep coming back to is something's going on uh, I, I will try and weave obviously buddhism into it as we go on but um buddhism is trying to say buddhism talks about terms of the perceptual situation um that if you open your eyes you're in a perceptual situation and that would be an, a good way to talk about it. and then that perceptual situation seems to you although you don't know you can't prove it you can't know it it seems to have an external sense which we roughly call the world an internal sense which we roughly call me or i yeah it seems to be bifurcated into those two things but we know that and one of the things you're trying to learn i think in buddhism is that mind and world condition each other even co-create each other yeah buddhism actually says that mind precedes world yeah? and what i want to do in these seminars if i can this is really not my <laughs> gig i'm better on metaphor anyway uh, i'll try and keep following this quest this this statement that mind precedes world um one of the first great statements of buddhism is experiences are preceded by mind led by mind and made up of mind yeah experiences are preceded by mind made up of mind led by mind and made up of mind now when you read that in the dharmapada which is one of the most important buddhist texts you can sort of read over it think oh that sounds but what does it actually mean that experiences are preceded by mind uh led by mind and made up of mind yeah. so one of the things we need to do immediately is look at this question of do to to answer that question from a from a modern point of view a good place to start would be does the brain create consciousness yeah now that is our most of our working assumption um don't know what is it your working hands up is that your working assumption nobody's working assumption that's weird <laughs> okay so people out there on youtube is <laughs> is their working assumption most of us without us quite knowing it assume that that's what happens yeah that your brain is creating consciousness and this the assumption seems to be that the more complex organisms become uh so you know we've become a more and more complex or- organism since we were a sperm and an ovum if we can call ourselves that uh or you know 
creatures become more and more complex. The assumption is that the more complex they become, the more consciousness can arise. Yeah? That's, that's a general uh, assumption. And that if you injure the mind, you break its, its networks of connection and complexity, and therefore you have less consciousness. Yeah? Um, it is actually very, very problematic. Uh, it's, I mean, when, I talk, when we were interviewed Ian McGillcroft on, on this, he thinks this is the most, of all the explanations for consciousness, he thinks it's the most unlikely. Yeah? Not the most likely. He, does, he says he doesn't know, but he says he thinks that's the most unlikely. Now, his approach, I mean, let's just put the, do watch the conversations because you know, they, they, they're much better than I can do in this short time. But Ian McGilchrist would say, for instance, his, one of his arguments is how can something utterly unlike matter arise from matter? Yeah? How can that happen? And if you say that is basically what's happening, it's actually a way of saying it's a miracle. It would be like getting algebra from rhubarb. Yeah? How could algebra arise out of rhubarb? It would have to be a sort of miracle. Yeah? Um, you know, you just can't. It's, and it's exactly the same. If you think consciousness arises out of matter, I don't know whether you've ever had a, an endoscopy or something. I remember having to have this is a slightly embarrassing moment, but I had to have my bladder looked at, and they showed me the screen. And it was a bit, I thought, I don't recognise it. <laughs> I don't know, that is so me, that bladder. <laughs> it's just, it's quite shocking. It's like, it's just like a pig's bladder. It's just, sorry to be so revealing. <laughs> but, but, oh, <laughs> it, it's just matter, it's just, um, just animal matter. So how does that create this? It really is, I think, like getting algebra from rhubarb. Um, his argument is if you think that matter creates consciousness. You're basically saying that consciousness is a miracle and that doesn't explain it. It doesn't get you anywhere with it. Yeah? Uh, so he thinks that's the most unlikely uh, explanation. Uh, uh, Bernardo Castro, who is a, a philosopher and uh, used to, used to, was specialising in AI and used to, um, used to work at CERN, one of the things he points to is the more and more recent experiments in LSD. I remember having my own experiments <laughs> with Alex D, which weren't so experimental. Um, but one of the things that Alex D does is it actually closes down your mind. It doesn't open it up. So it actually closes down parts of your brain. And what you get is more experience, not less. Yeah? Um, so if it's true that more and more complexity creates consciousness, then how do you explain that if you de make it less complicated, you get more experience? Yeah? Um, that's a real problem. LSD closes down the brain. It doesn't open it up to more neural pathways. Yeah? Um, he, he's not very keen on the argument of near-death experiences, which we'll look at later on in the series. He, he's got, which I'll, and I might touch on why, but you know, the, the, when you listen to Penny Satori talking about her, she did a five-year study on near-death experiences. It, it's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And if you hear even Alexander talk about his near-death experience, where he should be dead. I mean, he went from a 10% chance of recovery to a 2% chance of recovery with the assumption that you'd never walk or talk again or anything. He's now, you know, jetting around the world giving talks about his near-death experiences. I mean, he should actually be dead. It's, it's like a miracle. Um, OK, so that's our first assumption, yeah, that consciousness 
is created by the brain. The, the, the technical way of putting it is that consciousness is an epiphenomena of the brain. Yeah? That the brain is, um, you know, just, you know, we were built uh, to um, protect ourselves, to get food, to get shelter, to have sex, to procreate, and we needed a brain to move around, and, oh, that's weird. You know, out of that brain pops consciousness, and out of po- consciousness pops Mozart's symphony in a, you know, um, you know Marilyn Robinson novel. You know, all these things weirdly pop out of this consciousness that was just built to get us to have sex. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and a, and a burger, you know. Um, <laughs> so that's the first possible... And as I said, Ian McGilchrist, who knows far more than I do... Um, he says that's the most unlikely explanation. Yeah. Um, the second possibility is, does the, does, is consciousness um, transmitted by the brain? Yeah. So instead of the brain um, creating consciousness as an epiphenomena, as something that happens just in a slightly mirac- miraculous way like Rub- uh, algebra from Rhubarb, does... Is a contra- is is a brain like um, a transmitter, like a television? Yeah. So that the consciousness, whatever that is, remember we actually don't know what that is, or mind, whatever that is, because we don't know what it is, is somehow being um, beamed from the brain, but it doesn't em- emanate from the brain. You know, you know that when you when you smash a television, you know, you haven't you know killed Crackerjack or whatever it was on. <laughs> shows my age um, uh, I can't think of any contemporary re- <laughs> reference uh, Netflix um, there's a Celine I keep hearing seeing this ne- name is it even Celine uh, is it, I think she might be a singer anyway, anyway no I'll, I'll, I'll just like grasp for anything that seems vaguely now um, but you know when you let's go back to the television it's my, uh, you know when you just break a television that it's, you haven't You've just, you've just broken its capacity to transmit, yeah? So it's possi- is it possible um, that the, the brain transmits consciousness? still ends up with massive problems because we still don't know what consciousness is and now we, absolutely, we have no idea where it comes from. <laughs> um, but perhaps it transmits it, yeah? That's another possibility, um, and one of the things I've trying to, we were trying to do in the Nature of Mind project is open us up. First of all, really challenge our materialism. This idea that um, our lives are really sort of, we're just sort of chance creatures in a chaotic universe. The assumption of uh, materialism, as, you know, of uh, scientific materialism, I don't mean shopping, I mean scientific materialism, is um, that basically we're a kind of mistake um, we're, we're in a chaotic, random universe in which uh, we happen to have popped up. Uh, and there's all sorts of ways of trying to manage that, including a multiverse idea that, OK, it's very difficult to explain, so let's have a multiverse. Uh, there's a whole chapter, I think, in Ian McGilchrist about why the multiverse argument isn't an argument. But I couldn't even begin to go into that. Um, there's a whole chapter right, with quite a lot on you know, why snakes have mirror neurons as well. But anyway, let's not go there. Um, so, yeah, the, the second possibility is that consciousness is transmitted by the brain. Um, I mean, one of the interesting... You know, that what, what we're trying to do in this project is 
keep on showing people things that don't fit in with our worldview. Near-death experiences don't. Uh, children who have past life memories don't fit in. And when you hear about them, we'll be touching on those in our explorations, when you hear about them, I, don't, I can't explain it, but I can't explain it away either. I certainly, when I've heard about them, I can't just dismiss them. That, that seems unscientific, actually, um, irrational. But I can't explain them either. There's all sorts of things, you know, that another thing that, I don't know, just flashed through my mind was how p people quite often, even with Alzheimer's, can suddenly, near the end of death, suddenly have this, it all comes back. You know, they, they suddenly come back. Very, very, for a very brief period, the whole person comes back. Why does that happen? How can that happen? You know, if their brain has got to a point now where it can't even transmit consciousness. Um, so that's another possibility that consciousness, and then that you still need a thought. So consciousness, therefore, must be, I don't know, um, shared. Um, uh, it might be even, as it were, what we originally meant by God, creating the universe. Perhaps that's what consciousness is. I don't know. It's interesting. Ian McGilchrist actually ends up with a kind of God, albeit such an unusual one that it's actually closer to Buddhism than he realizes. And I, I think the language of God is confusing. Um, I think we. I, I think it's not going to work. Um, anyway, he he thinks Ian McGilchrist and do as I say, you know, come on the retreat and watch these two new ones where he's talking actually about God and about value. But he thinks that's more likely, but it's still problematic. Yeah. Um, can't even remember all the reasons because it's a very big book. Um, he says there's a third option. Yeah, so you, you can think uh, that the, the, the consciousness is created by the brain or it's transmitted by the brain, a little bit like television transmits whatever it is, that, what is it, you know, the signal, uh, uh, yeah, uh, so it might be transmitting it. The other possibility, he, he thinks this is the most likely one, is that consciousness, uh, sorry, uh, the brain permits consciousness. So you can either think of the brain, as it were, emitting consciousness, creating it um, as an epiphenomena of the brain, or you can think of it transmitting it uh, like a television, or you can think that the brain permits consciousness. Um, interestingly, Ibn Alexander, who had this near-death experience and is a neuroscientist, I think he's a neuroscientist, either, I think he is, or he's a brain surgeon, one of the two, um, I can't remember. Um, he, he also thinks this, that consciousness is permitted by the brain. Um, like his, in his, his, his near-death experience, he was pretty much brain dead. So according to our science, he can't be having any kind of experience. And he was having this incredible experience. Um, Penny Satori, and I'll talk about her next week or the week after, she talks about a patient who had a particular palsy where the hand gets like this, and you, you, you can't open, the only way you can open the hand is by surgery on the hand. And uh, he had this near-death experience, this patient, patient 10, and uh, she said to him, is there anything you can do after the near-death experience you couldn't do before? And he said, yes, I can do that. And that's not possible to do that. Because you're, you know, the, the tendons get so tight, you, you can only surgery can open your hand. So 
you, you, that can't be possible, and yet is, that is actually what happened. So what those do for me, I don't know what they, that does for you, it opens me to the, more and more to the mystery of our life, which we're right in the centre of. We couldn't be closer to the mystery of our life, but we miss it by, um, I don't know, just worrying about our emails and our love life and our, whether we managed to get a burger or not. Um, meanwhile, we're in the biggest mystery you could possibly ever hope for. You know, we go and see Top Gun or something to get a bit of excitement, but we're actually already in the most exciting mystery. Um, it's eminently forgettable, by the way, Top Gun, but quite watchable. <laughs> <laughs> I was forgetting it with every step home. Um, so anyway, let's not go on about Top Gun. So then... Ian McGilchrist thinks that this idea that the, that the brain permits consciousness is the most likely. Um, he doesn't know, and one of the things I'm keen to emphasise in Nature of Mind is that I don't know and they don't. We, nobody knows stuff. We're just opening to stuff. We're just trying to think about life. Because that's what humans are here for, is to explore the mystery of being here in the first place. Yeah? Uh, and certitude isn't possible in the human condition. Certitude is a sort of ignorance. Yeah? Uh, so I'm not interested in answers so much, uh, and I'm very definitely not interested in certitude. I don't think Buddhism is interested in certitude. Um, I'm interested in that sense of, oh, I've never... I th of course I've been thinking like that, and that may not be true. Yeah? So the, the idea that the brain permits consciousness is that basically that the brain might be like a, um, a limiter valve. Yeah? so that it allows or not a certain degree of consciousness to flow as it were through it like a limiter valve um, do you see how that would or could help explain why in LSD experiments where you close down the brain you get more consciousness so somehow you're closing down something which is effectively opening the brain to more consciousness going through it yeah? that you, your brain as it were is it like a limiter valve yeah, that um, it permits or not consciousness that there is that we, li we live in consciousness um, you know and again that starts to sound quite like what the Buddha is saying by uh, experiences are preceded by mind led by mind and uh, made up of mind that seems to be and experiences are all we have and that, the Buddha is saying, is um, preceded by mind, led by mind, and made up of mind. It's possible that, you, that the brain is like a valve that can be closed or opened more and more. Yeah. One, of the, one of the explorations that we went into is these people with near-death experiences. And of course the brain is massively closed down, even almost brain-dead, and yet they're consciousness, to call it that, is unimaginably larger to the degree to which they often change their life and nearly always become more compassionate. Um, so that's his most, his favourite, as it were, explanation that somehow your brain permits consciousness. And that also makes, it helps us understand meditation a bit. Because that's how it feels in meditation. In meditation, you don't feel like um, you're, I don't know, you're, you're emitting more and more consciousness. You feel like you're opening up 
to more consciousness. That, all, that your job is to open up. Yeah? Um, and you know, I've had experiences, hopefully you have experiences by now in meditation, in which experiences are more conscious. In which, I remember when I first came to this class, I couldn't meditate for toffee actually, uh, but when I first came to this class, cycling back to my squat in Brixton, um, it was my experience had more consciousness, was more alive, was more, there was more, there wasn't just more to me, uh, it wasn't just that my inner sense was felt more conscious and alive, but my sense of myself in relationship to the world felt more conscious, almost as if the street lamps were slightly conscious, or as if um, life was a picture of consciousness unfolding. Um, when you go very deep in meditation, it is more like that experientially, isn't it? That you move into a world and the world seems to uh, be in some kind of um, communication with you that you'd switched off, um, that you'd, that you'd actually um, damaged almost. Um, children have it very naturally. They, they, they feel a natural kind of animistic sense of the world and we close it down, you know. Um, when you go very deeper in meditation, particularly on retreat, because retreats are really basically a, a set of good conditions so that you can meditate more deeply. It's not just that you come out feeling better, calmer and more relaxed. You sort of do, at least sometimes. Um, but you, what's more interesting for me, I mean, I do want to be better, calmer and more relaxed, but what's more interesting for me is the world itself, which is a posh word for my experience, um, seems to be more of the nature of consciousness. Um, trees, even inanimate things, seem like they have a, a sort of, as it were, consciousness. I don't mean they, you know, I don't talk to the stones and I don't have a conversation with a tree, uh, and I certainly don't hug them. Uh, they might not like it, remember. Um, <laughs> Hello, tree, get out, get your hands off me. <laughs> um, they might not like it, but you, something, something like my consciousness, as it were, whatever that is, because we don't know what it is, feels like it's shining back at me as well. Not as mine, but not as not mine either. Um, Anyway, let's, um, that's, that's as far as I can go just tonight. So let's, uh, let's just finish with a very short meditation because, and let's try and meditate with this, this sense, this remembered sense. Let's just imagine that mind isn't, that consciousness isn't created by the brain. <laughs>